So please open your Bible, though, to First Peter. Uh, and we're going to take a look at the first two verses of this incredible epistle. And I want to read these verses aloud, and uh, you follow them in your Bibles quietly. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Now, to get us started, I wanted to share from a few men who lived and preached at roughly the exact same time period in England. The first is C.H. Spurgeon, whom we're so very familiar with. He says this, we are chosen as an afflicted people and not as a prosperous people. Chosen not in the palace, but in the furnace. End quote. That sums up this entire letter, believe it or not. It says it all. Chosen, not in the palace, but in the furnace. This is the very section, actually, that we're going to study this morning. Chosen. In that way, in other words, God takes people who feel like they're in a kind of misery as though burning alive, who are aware of inner suffering from the understanding of their spiritual condition that their sins have put them in. He takes those kinds of people to save. And you know what he does? He comforts them. And he comforts them in that misery with salvation. That's amazing. It's wonderful. Isn't that good? It's what he's done. That's, now listen as I say this, that is what the doctrine of election is to us. It is comfort. And if you don't think of it that way, somebody along the road has sold you the bill of goods. They have not told you the truth from the Bible. It is the great source of comfort. In fact, that is why Peter starts this way here in First Peter. Remember, this is a letter written to people that are suffering, people that are struggling with affliction of various kinds. And as he's considering, how do I start this letter? He says, I'm going to start it talking about election. In fact, most don't like the doctrine of election, and some hate it. Listen to J.C. Ryle, quote, Nothing gives such offense 
and stirs up such bitter feeling among the wicked as the idea of God making any distinction between man and man and loving one person more than another. He's right. He gets up the cackles. It's it's the stroking the cat backwards. Our topic for the next few weeks is election. And I didn't choose this topic. I want you to know that. We're just going to teach you this, these verses. And nothing could stand out to me more as I was reading through the Greek text this last week. And I kept saying to myself, that word chosen, it literally is the controlling thought of these two verses. Peter did that. He wrote it in, that, in the Greek language that way. He wanted us to think about the word chosen. And so that's why I'm calling this series The Chosen. And no, we're not going to talk about the movie series or anything like that. Most so-called Christians really struggle with this kind of topic. A.W. Pink says this, I'm going to speak tonight on one of the most hated doctrines of the Bible, namely that of God's sovereign election. End quote. Pink started a message that way to the church. And again, he's right. It is difficult. And I don't want to avoid that it's saying that. It is difficult. But I do want to ask this question because we should ask it. Why is it so hard for some people to accept the biblical doctrine of election, sovereign election? Now, let me, having said that, I want to tell you something. When I became a Christian, I didn't embrace this doctrine. I didn't know it. Didn't, couldn't tell you, I couldn't tell you boo about it. Knew nothing about this, this doctrine. Why? Because I didn't know much about the Bible. See, when did you start embracing this? Was, it, was there somebody that told you about it? No, I just started reading my Bible and just letting it speak for what it says. Then I began to bump into other people and they started telling us what these giving these titles and these names. I have that ringer tone too, by the way. <laughs> Somebody's got something going on there. <laughs> it's all right. I shouldn't be calling that out right. That's, that's too absurd. I hope it's, uh, yeah, everything's all right. Lots of names to be for it. And I didn't know, you know, these names. So once I started to learn, you know, Names like Calvinism or election or predestination or whatever. I just said to myself, oh, well, okay, that's, that's what it's called. Okay, I, just, I just didn't know. But the string was tightly attached to Scripture. It wasn't hard for me to embrace because of it, this was there in the Bible. Now, why is it so hard for some people to accept the, the biblical doctrine of sovereign election? I want to think you and I to think about this. We can think of a couple of reasons. One, because 
it is ingrained with us to take credit for choosing a right direction in life. And so you might say the first reason is because of pride. We are a prideful people. We want to be the captain of our lives. We want to be the ones that will say where life is going. Have you noticed that you can't control life yet? You've tried. You keep trying. Keep trying, right? You can't. Boy, our flesh loves creeds like choose the right. We, we, we want some kind of credit for choosing God. See, It's ingrained in all of us. But secondly, for some... I think it is hard to accept because it seems unfair. Now, the first reaction is a care for self. The the second one is is a supposed care for others. You want to make it seem like you care so much about all the people of the world that you feel it would be unfair for God to choose to save some and not all. And it has not even dawned on you to think that there are many people that don't want to be saved. Do you want to know how many people don't want to be saved? If you're good in mathematics, read Romans 3 and try to mathematically explain what the word none means. Because that's what it says. There are none that seek after God, none that want Him. At the core of who we are. And you know that. John 3 says it's because you love your sin. In other words, when we say that... um, People say it would be unfair for God to choose to save some and not all. Man in his nature wants God to measure right and wrong by his own standards. He wants God to measure who is savable by man's own standards of what is fair. Let me put some thoughts before you. It's always good to remember Isaiah 55, verse 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Or Psalm 50, verse 21, where God says, You thought that I was just like you. We start to think of salvation in terms of what is fair, but the problem is our standard of fair is far below God's standard. You always have exceptions, don't you? And that's because you realize that the bar for your own righteousness keeps getting lowered and lowered and lowered the more bad you do. Now, you know, if we got what was fair... What would we get? Hell. Listen, I say this with as much tenderness as I can try to convey to you. Salvation isn't about fairness. It's about grace. Now as we look at this first part of 1 Peter 
we have to make some connections with some comments, okay? This first part is called a greeting. And um, this is typical of, of how writings were. Paul writes this way. Peter writes this way. Uh, very many people write this way. But there's way more here than the usual greeting where you just say, Peter, to these Christians at these churches, peace to you guys, you know. In just this greeting, Peter helps us understand something massively profound. What he does is he takes heaven and he takes earth and he makes them shake hands. And he touches them together in an incredible way. Now look at this first verse and I'm going to show you. He's going to talk about election. Notice verse 1, the very end of it, it says, who are chosen, those who are elect. Now this whole letter is Peter encouraging them that are facing pressure. We've made that point last week. Facing some situations of suffering. And Peter is going to attach them, chapter 5, verse 12, to the true grace of God. But the first way to get them to that grace is through sovereign grace. And that is what election is. It is to get them connected to election. And he does it by showing the apostolic work of grace in the gospel on this earth. Okay? In other words, their connection to election as it relates to this earth. Look at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. To the believers, he says, to the Christians who reside, that is, who live, and this is the key word here, as aliens. As, um, in other ways, maybe some of your translations say sojourners as renters, as guests, as nomads or travelers, um, visitors, if you will. And then he lays out the different provinces that these people live. Now, as it relates to this earth, they have this location. I mean... This is the perspective of election as far as this earth goes. They're here and they're in in these areas. And I love that he does that because he wants us to understand you can't think of election in terms of all the people that are out there that are elect. Oh, if we only knew them. Like one one guy once said, if you could just take the back of the shirt and see the E written on the back of them, you know how to who to share the gospel with and all that. But that's not how it works. But as far as heaven goes, it is all, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the work of the Spirit to obey Jesus and so forth. So in other words, the first thing we need to understand that the gospel does have to physically go out to these physical people to hear it and receive it and they live in, this, in these physical locations, right? all, all these provinces. We don't, we don't say when we, when we speak of the doctrine of election, we don't say, well, you don't even need to share the gospel with anybody. No, of course you do. And you need to call for them to believe it. 
right where they live. And so for Peter to talk about election, he has to connect the divine to the earth where places like Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia are at. In other words, election even relates with places like that. Now on this earth, notice, still talking about them being on this earth, it says they are scattered. That's the word used there. And this is the Greek word diaspora. Have you heard of that word, diaspora? It is a word that typically refers to normally Jews that have been scattered abroad from Israel to live across the world. In Acts 2, you remember when they came there at the time of the Passover, it describes all the different places they were from, and some of these places are there. They were a part of the diaspora, Jews that were scattered. Now that might tell us that Peter is writing to Jewish Christians. But because of a few places in this letter, I don't believe that that's the case here. Not only that, now listen, Peter doesn't use an article, that's the word the, he doesn't have the word the, so it's not the diaspora. You say, why are you you saying that? Because in James chapter 1, verse 1, James does. He's clearly writing the Jewish Christians of the 12 tribes of Israel, he says. So what's the point for Peter? Look at chapter 2, verse 11. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust. He's just saying, he calls them aliens there, strangers. He's just saying, you don't belong here. When he uses the word scattered and the word aliens, he's just saying, you don't belong here. This isn't your home. Now you say, is Peter saying even more? I say this because I read this in some commentaries. Oh, but there was such a good one. I, I wish I had time to share from this, this one with you. He explained it pretty good. But, but some will say, well, is Peter saying even more? Like, is he saying that Israel has been displaced and you are the new Israel? He's not. I don't believe that. He's just saying you have the same quality, scattered, dispersed like a stranger, like an alien. I believe here he's talking like in Philippians 3.3. 3. Remember Philippians 3.3 3 when he called them the true circumcision? He said, uh, we're the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's taking, a, taking one uh, symbol of something and giving it a spiritual meaning. And his point is that we're not from here. You're scattered in these providences. You have a zip code, but that doesn't make you owners and possessors. You're just guests. You're just guests. That's helpful. I think we should embrace Fallon. I I think we should have a heart for Fallon. We should want people that live here to know him and to be involved in the community and to connect with people in the community. But listen, never forget as believers in Jesus Christ, we're guests. We're not, this isn't our, this is not our home. We're not Fallonites. And it doesn't matter if you were born and raised here. 
Once you become a Christian, you're no longer a felony. Now you're a Christian. One that belongs to the kingdom of Christ. We're residents of a different country, Hebrews 11. Now what are the, those provinces he's talking about here? All of them are, have, are places that are in modern day Greece, uh, excuse me, not Greece, Turkey. Modern day Turkey, all of them. I lived in Turkey for a couple of years. It's a very interesting uh, country. Um, didn't understand most of what they were saying. They had lots of interesting customs. It's very much Muslim now, but not so back then. At this time there, Peter is writing this, there were a lot of churches in that area full of Jews and full of Gentile believers, but mostly Gentile believers. In fact, Peter doesn't even list the churches from Revelation 2 and 3 that are also in this area. So there's a, there are a lot of churches in this area. Now, why is Peter writing to such a sweeping audience? We don't know. We, we, don't, we have no reason to believe that he's gone to them before. Galatians 2, Peter's ministry was to the Jews. Paul's was to the Gentiles. It's, it's really even possible that it was Paul himself that had this ministry, and the, this gospel ministry into these areas. Possible. But right at this point, Peter feels the need to shepherd these believers in these churches who are facing suffering kind of pressure. And I'm, I'm glad he does. Peter never felt like he needed to be invited to anything anyway. So, right? That's not his thing. He just said, I see a need, I'm doing it. I'm writing this letter. Now that brings me to the other point I wanted to make about this And to me, this is big. Right away, Peter connects them to the divine answer for their suffering. It says, who are chosen. Diaspora, scattered. Persecution. It scatters people. In the midst of that, he says, the world doesn't choose you. But you're chosen. God chooses you. The world has rejected you, but not God. He's chosen you. Now we need to think about that word chosen. Uh, Eklektos is the Greek word. It means called out ones. Um, That's a great title for for Christians. That's what explanation for Christians. Christians are the called out ones, right? We are called out. You know why I like that? Because we are called out of the world into the body of Christ, into serving the Lord. That's why we say this world is not our home. We belong to Christ. We're the chosen. Now we need to think a little deeper about this idea of chosen, the chosen. Um, Israel was called the chosen, right? Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6 For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Chosen, the elect. Israel was was the Lord's elect. Let me give you a few places to see this here so that you understand this is not just kind of pulled, you know, as a 
some isolated thing. Deuteronomy 14, verse 2, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you. It says that about Israel. Psalm 105, verse 43, He brought forth His people with joy, His chosen ones with a joyful shout. Psalm 135, verse 4, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. Now what made God choose Israel? Nothing, right? Nothing. I mean, it took Israel five minutes before she was worshiping the golden calf. Moses left. All right, make the golden calf. We're going to worship it. We're going to have a party. Whoa, where did that come from? Five minutes is all he needed. Parents, you don't have to wonder a whole lot when you leave your kids for five minutes, okay? There's that little thing inside their hearts. And it was, it was in yours too, if you were honest, as a child. Nothing. He did it. He chose Israel for himself. There was nothing motivating him to do that very thing except his own will. That's it. His own will that was being driven, are you ready for this? By love. By love. You know how I know that? Because there's a trinity. Trinity is true. And that's where the plan for, for, for this came from. And if you have the Trinity, that means you have three persons, one essence. In three persons, there's going to be relationship. And in relationship, there's going to be love. What motivated choosing? Love. Now, by the way, you can see a similar thing with the believers as a whole in the New Testament. Israel was the Lord's elect. The church is the Lord's elect too. Matthew 24, verse 22. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. What days is he talking about? Talking about the tribulation days just before Jesus returns. Who's the elect? The church here on this earth. Believers, Christians, right? So believing Israel is the chosen. The church is the chosen. Later in chapter 24, verse 31 of Matthew. The angels will gather together his elect from the four winds. The elect, the chosen. That's how we relate to heaven, to the divine, to God. We are the chosen of God. See. What about the rest of the New Testament? I'll give you a little bit of a tour. Luke, chapter 18, verse 7. Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? Who's that? The saints, the church. Romans 8.33, God's elect. Romans 9.11, God's choice. Romans 11.7, what Israel is seeking, unbelieving Israel, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it. Obtained what? Salvation. The chosen, see. 1 Corinthians 1.9, you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And there's so many places here that we could refer to. 
Colossians 3.12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. What are Christians? The chosen. Those who have been chosen of God. Second Thessalonians 2.13, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Second Timothy 2.10, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. Who gets salvation? Those who are chosen. The chosen. You say, oh man, what made God choose people? Some and not others. His own will. You'll never know. You'll never know. Except His own love. Why would we be so discouraged about the love of God? What's Peter saying then in these opening words? He's saying this. Here you are. You're getting beat up by the world. You're suffering. You're struggling. You're going through maybe a difficult time. And you might not be the world's choice, but as Christians, you're God's chosen. So guess what? You're okay. These two verses, Peter points to election and says that's the greatest source of comfort we have for suffering. You say, okay, well then, I better learn more about it then. Yeah, I agree. And that's why, there in your notes, I've given you seven insights into the amazing truth about God's sovereign election. This morning, you get one. (laughs) So, we're going to learn about, first of all, the particularity of election. The particularity of election. What do I mean by the particularity of election? Of election. You say, I don't even know. I'm trying to spell this thing here. I know. Sorry. Sorry about that. I wasn't one of those spelling bee uh, kids uh, either. So, you know. Well, I was, but I was one of the first ones that went out. You know, like, oh, man, it's two syllables. This is hard. All right. So here we go. The composition of it. The nature of election. What is this thing? What is so particular about election? In other words, God has chosen particular people. What then is the nature of election that it is particular? And what I'd like to do is break down these two verses phrase by phrase. Believe it or not, in the Greek, after saying Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter, the very next word that he says is chosen, elect. So that tells us that's the main thought. It's a passive verbal adjective which has both a noun and verb feel to it. It implies someone else chose us. It's outside of us. What's that mean? Chosen by God. That's what is so particular about this. We are chosen by God himself. You say, so are you saying God just chose some people out of the whole world? Yes. Yeah, that's what this is saying. You say, is that really how the Bible presents salvation? God choosing ones that he wants from many others? Well, I'm just going to let scripture speak. So turn to Matthew chapter 20 and let's go on a journey. 
And let's see what we can learn, okay? It's very important that you understand that I, I, I'm not the inventor of this doctrine. Calvin is not. Augustine is not. Matthew chapter 20. Now, the, the Lord anticipated people would hate this doctrine, and that's part of what I want to show you. We always, by the way, want what we want, and we have a hard time when others make decisions for us. We, you know, we want life on our terms. And here is the Lord saying, actually, salvation is on His terms and not yours. He chooses. So look here at this parable. Matthew 20 is a parable about some laborers in a vineyard. So you have this landowner, and he goes through this marketplace looking to hire laborers, and then what he's going to do is pay these laborers. Okay, That's all, we, that's all we've got there, there in the beginning. It's pretty simple. He doesn't say how much. Well, he does say it for denarius. That was the agreement. But he doesn't say anything about prorating or anything like that. You're going to get paid denarius. Okay? Go work. He goes through and he picks some at the third hour and others at the sixth and then the ninth and then the eleventh hour he picks workers. And then you get to the end of the day and the landowner pays each one the same. Now watch this. And some struggled with that. Now, like all parables, he makes simple points. And like many of the parables, often the points were having to do with believers and those that were a part of Israel that just had, wouldn't believe. And it says here that these people grumbled. Why did they grumble? Verse 10. They thought that they would receive more. In other words, even though the owner told them how much they were getting, they believed that they were worth more. In other words, they measured it out according to their own system of what? Fairness. The landowner finally tells the grumbler in verse 14, Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. In other words, my pay is based on what I what? Wish. It's based on my will, not yours. Is it unfair? Look at verse 15. Matthew 20, verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my my own? Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? See the key? We struggled. We struggle with God's generosity, actually. That's our great struggle. We don't struggle that He has chosen us, but that He chooses others ones that maybe we think don't deserve it. Or the others that we think, well, they do deserve it. 
See? No different. He knows us. The whole parable is about God picking out him he wanted to give eternal life to. And Israel understood that and didn't like it. Why? Because it included Gentiles. That's the picture Jesus gives of salvation. Jesus knows that about us. In fact, go to Luke 4 for a moment. I just want to drive this home a little deeper. Now this is the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He's in the north on the Sabbath there near Nazareth, you know, Galilee. He's at a synagogue there on the Sabbath and he was called up to read and they gave him the scroll called Isaiah and he opens up this scroll, Isaiah, and he reads from the 61st chapter, which is a messianic section, and it says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, sight to the blind, to set free those oppressed. And then Jesus sat down. Now, by the way, sitting down is telling them, I have something to say. We do it a little bit different. Here we stand up. There you stood up to read, but then you sat down to teach. So the fact that he sat down made them go, okay, here we go. And he says this, today this scripture is fulfilled. Now, whoa, Messiah's here. You're telling us you're him? Now, are they okay with that? Watch this. In the beginning, yes. Look at it, if you're there. I think they are. Verse 22. All, it says, all were speaking well of him. Whoa. Are you kidding me? Messiah just walks right through the door, comes and sits down in our synagogue, and makes us aware that he's here. Can he get any better than that? Any easier than that? Let's go, right? This is exciting. But Jesus isn't done speaking. Verse 23. He says, well, in a moment, though, hang on here, guys. In a moment, you're going to say, physician, heal yourself. In other words, what you're going to say is this. Hey, wait a minute. We're not the sick ones. You are. I mean, you're just like us. If we're sick, you're sick. Don't make yourself out to be better than us. We saw you. We saw you growing up. You were right over there from that town called Nazareth. And by the way, nothing good comes out of Nazareth, so come on. Why are they going to... Why would they... What? Why are they going to say that? Why does Jesus say that they're going to say that? Because... He reads their hearts and he says, I'm about to say something that's going to make you say that. What could he possibly say that would make them say, physician, heal yourself? Verse 25. He reads their hearts before they can even react and he says, but I say to you in truth, there there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Many, many widows. Jewish widows. 
When the sky was shut up for three years and six months, yet Elijah, so there's a famine, yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath, Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Now, verse 27, he says, there were many lepers, all kinds of lepers. None were cleansed but Naaman the Syrian. Verse 28, all the people in the synagogue, when they heard these two stories, were filled rage as they heard these things and they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to a cliff to throw him over. Now what made him so mad? This. That Jesus was saying out of many God chose a Gentile woman and a Syrian man to cleanse. That is unfair. Why wouldn't he choose us? How dare you? How dare you come in here and tell us that God chooses some when there are many here? How dare you? That's what they're saying to Jesus. It's terrible. They were enraged at how God chooses some and not others. Worse, that the ones that God chooses are the wrong ones. The truth about election, beloved, enrages man. It always has. It always will. He hates this doctrine. A.W. Pink was right. Jesus was basically telling them all about God's sovereign grace and the people hated him for it. Now, beloved, the fact that God chooses some from many is all over the place. And if you don't seek to embrace this, notice, I didn't say that you're going to fully understand this. It's possible to embrace something that you don't fully understand. You do it all the time. You can't even explain the Trinity, can you? You can't explain who wrote the Bible. You can't even explain who lives your Christian life. Now, this is the particular thing about election that is that so many hate, but that is crucial. It's the key thing, and that is that God is the one who chooses, and he's not holding a convention or a conference or a board meeting to get any input from you about that. John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, Jesus said to the disciples, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and so forth. It's like Jesus is correcting something in their minds when he says that. You know, make sure you think this way, guys. You didn't choose me. Why do you start with the negative? He does that because this is what they're thinking. They have to be programmed differently with truth. That's where the mind wants to go. That's where our logic rests. I did this. Jesus says, no, you didn't. God did it. So Jesus says it. Luke says it. Luke says it in Acts 13. 
Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel there. And it said nearly the whole city assembled to hear it. And some Jews saw the big Gentile crowd. Oh, man, this is going to be incredible. But then they got jealous, and so they decided to stir it up. So Paul and Barnabas say, We're turning to the Gentiles since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Oh, whoa, whoa. Some might think, wait a minute. Isn't Israel the chosen? In the Old Testament, they were. That's true. But in the New Testament, there's a different plan not to replace, but a plan to set them aside. And we learn about that plan in Romans 11. But Paul said this. The Lord's plan was like this the whole time. Isaiah 42.6, Isaiah 49.6. This is the quote there in Acts 13. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation into the earth. Now, how can God get the gospel out He gets it out to the whole world by saving a bunch of Gentiles. Now follow this. What can we make of this? Verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord in as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. How many believed? As many as had been appointed to eternal life. Oh, okay. Well, how many is that? He doesn't say. It's not important. But it came to those that believed. And the ones that believed were the ones that were appointed. The the ones chosen. Who did the choosing? God did. Romans 9, same thing. We've covered this in the past, so I'm not going to go through the entirety of this, but Paul, remember this? Paul uses an example from Genesis. Um, you've got twins born to Isaac, Esau, Jacob, verse 11, though they were not yet, yet born, they hadn't done any good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Because of his choice. Verse 14, Paul asked the question for them. There's no injustice with God, is there? You know, in other words, does this show that God is unfair? (laughs) I love that he goes there. He's saying, yeah, I know what you're thinking. You think God's unfair when I say this. May it never be. No way. Verse 15, God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. Verse 18, same thing. Verse 20, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Verse 21, doesn't the potter have the right over the clay to make it however he wants? Sure. You ever have that happen? Maybe you're in art class. That was an absolute time of suffering for my life. But let's just say you were and you're making this pottery and somebody every about five or ten minutes comes to you and says, hey, you should do this. Hey, you, you should do this. What do you think of that person? Well, not happy thoughts, right? <laughs> no, the potter has the right to do what he wants with the clay. He's saying, but I wish God would have consulted me about this whole deal. I mean, things would have been so much... Are you going to say better? You were thinking it. Verse 
No, no. Evil people don't have better plans than God. He says it's all based on his will. It's not based on anything but his will. And you know, when we fight against that, we're fighting against the molder. He has the right. and We're just being prideful when he when we say he doesn't. Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Oh, wonderful. Who's he talking about? Christians. How has he blessed us? What's an example of that blessing? Oh, wait till you hear this. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He tells us when he chose us, when? Before the world existed. Listen, God's existence before time began was when he chose us. Before time began. That's the part that the scientists like to tell us has the word that billions and millions and all that kind of stuff. They don't know. They have no clue. None. Zero. And at best, they're, they're making what they call educated guesses. But I'm going to call them biased guesses. Verse 5, he predestined us. It's just all over. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.4, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, the chosen. 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Another way of saying, literally, the Greek says, before time. Before time's eternal, Literally. Over in chapter 2, verse 10, we shared this already with you. Paul says, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen to obtain salvation. In other words, the aim of my gospel ministry is the elect. I preach to reach the chosen. So he goes around looking for the chosen? No. He just preaches the gospel. The chosen are the ones that what? Believe. Now, for time's sake, let me have you do this. Just a moment. Turn to Revelation. We're going to bring this thing to a nice, put a nice little bow on it if we can. Listen, it's all over the place. And the reason why I'm having you turn to Revelation is because I want you to see that it's all over the place. Even at the very end of the Bible. It's like he's trying to tell us over and over and over because we just won't listen. Chapter 13. End of the age, future stuff here. The beast makes war with the saints. Verse 7, look at verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name, here it is, has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who has been slain. I mean, who's that? Jesus Christ. What kind of book is this? We don't know. We don't know but it's one that has names written in it. Who wrote them? Well, I mean, it's the Lamb's book, so I have to assume who wrote them. The Lamb did, right? See, where did he get these names from? John chapter 6 and John 17 tells us that the Father gave the ones whom he wanted to be saved to the Son. So it looks like this. Decreed in heaven, 
those whom he would save, chose them, gave them to the Son. He wrote those names in a book, and then he did the work on the cross to save them. See how that works? It's amazing. For the found, from the foundation of the world, the day the world was framed. I mean, now that's how long God has had you and me in his mind for salvation. Does that encourage you? Does that bring you comfort? Chapter 17, verse 8. If you want to look there, those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will, will wonder when they see the beast. Now the beast is going to, it seems to be taken out and then come to life and and they're going to be all gawking in wonder. But who is it? It's the non-chosen. It's the non-elect that are going to, that are going to wonder. Over to verse 14, Revelation 17, 14. These will wage war against the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings and those who are with Him are called the chosen excuse me, are the called and chosen and faithful. The chosen. That's us believers, the chosen. We're all of those. That's not all. Look over at Revelation 20. This is the great white throne uh, throne of judgment, verse 14. Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And then verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now whose name is in that book of life? The chosen. And so many struggle with that. Why? I'm now going to give you the answer why so many struggle with that. I've been saying it. Let's find out why. Here it is. Go back one chapter. Revelation chapter 19. When Jesus comes back, he's going to reveal this. Verse 16. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. Here it is. This is his name. King of kings and Lord of lords. And earlier, this makes sense because earlier in verse 6, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. What it is that we struggle with, with regards to election, is that. We struggle with God being the Almighty. We we struggle with Jesus Christ reigning and calling the shots, all of the shots. We want control of life. We're okay with Jesus the compassionate, with Jesus the merciful, Jesus the lover, Jesus the forgiver, Jesus the healer. But you say Jesus the one who reigns? The Almighty? The one who has a book that has names in it written from before the foundation of the world? You're not okay with that. You say that when it comes to salvation and mankind loses it. You've taken away what is precious for us, our choice, the the freedom of will. What if the freedom of your will would never choose him? Huh? You say, why would you even say that? Why go there? 
I didn't. Again, go read Romans 3. I'm not making this up. Now, I want to close with this picture. So turn to Daniel 4 as we close. This is the picture in Daniel 4. Now, I believe this doctrine of God's sovereign will to save is the very thing that finally broke King Nebuchadnezzar. Did you know that? It is. Daniel 4 verse 4, King Nebuchadnezzar was feeling so good about himself, felt strong, felt empowered, so much victory, so much glory, so much reign everywhere. Read it for yourselves. You can just read the history of Nebuchadnezzar and you'll see the guy was unbelievable in terms of reign. He um, had so much freedom to do whatever he wanted to have whatever he wanted. The king has a dream and it made him fear. And so he called for his good friend Daniel to interpret it. And I won't go through all the details and you can read of it yourself. But you get to verse 17 and here's the end part of the dream. He says, In order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. Now here is Nebuchadnezzar feeling good about himself as a king and he has a dream and he frightens him because he thinks, wait a minute, Ugh, I've already done dream thing in the past with Daniel before. I don't want that anymore. It's always a scary time. And so God was here telling Nebuchadnezzar, you need to think of yourself as the lowliest before God will lift you up in salvation. Verse 22, Daniel says, this dream you had was because you have become great and grown strong and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. Daniel told him, the Lord is going to make you like the beasts of the field for seven periods of time, eating grass like a cow. That does not sound like an awesome time in life. Watch this. He says, this is going to happen until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. He told him, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven So what's he need to do? Verse 27. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. So verse 30, you know, guess what Nebuchadnezzar does? The opposite of that. Don't we all? God tells us what to do. We go, okay, and you go the opposite direction. He glorifies himself there in verse 30. Look at my kingdom. I'm so... Listen, I'm giving you the... It's way more than what I'm telling you. I'm so awesome, he's saying. Verse 31, a voice came from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. This is the third time he is saying and bestows it on whomever he wishes. What point are you trying to make to Nebuchadnezzar that he bestows it on whomever he wishes? Are you trying to tell me that he bestows it on whomever he wishes? 
What I'm trying to tell you is that he bestows it on whomever he wishes. Okay. Watch this. He says, uh, listen. Nebuchadnezzar, I'm taking your freedom away until you can admit that God is sovereign and gives salvation to whomever he wishes. So God brings the king low, just like Daniel said. And then verse 34. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. That doesn't come without Him being a, like a, seeing Himself as a lowly beast. For his, this is, he keeps saying, he goes on. Nebuchadnezzar says this. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. You know what he's doing? He's quoting Psalm 145. He's saying, God's right. I believe him. He's king. What about the other part? That he bestows it on whoever he wishes. Verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? Does does that sound like Romans 9? Yeah, exactly. And I truly believe the only reason any person would ever believe in this doctrine is if they had the King Nebuchadnezzar experience of recognizing how low you really are. That the true you is just a grass-eating cattle. See, you make it sound like I'm a beast. Yeah. Yeah. What is the Nebuchadnezzar experience? It's getting your pride crushed. It's when you're at the point when you don't really care about free will. You're just desperate. You feel empty. You feel worthless. You feel lame. You, you feel too weak. You see yourself as unable. And you're like Peter in Luke 5, unworthy. You're like the publican beating his breast in Luke 18. Humility is the only way to embrace what Peter is saying. And you know, when you talk to a person facing the pressures that bring suffering, only a prideful, stubborn, free will keeps you from getting comfort from a doctrine like this. What did King Nebuchadnezzar learn that we need to learn? Number one, God is ruler over all. And number two, God is gracious to save all who will come to Him. It's that simple. It is that simple. What a comfort. That's just the first point. We who are chosen. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace and kindness to give us this text, to give us this um, in this letter, really, and We just want to receive it, Father, for how you intended it, for how you wrote it and gave it to us. Lord, we we admit that we, we can struggle with this. I struggle with this. But not to the point, Lord, and I thank you for this, 
that it keeps me from you. And I thank you for that work. Oh, Lord, help others this morning to hear this and to admit and to really receive what you're saying. We just want to cry out with Peter, with Nebuchadnezzar, with so many others, that you are a good and gracious king. And we thank you that you bestow salvation to whomever you wish. And I pray, Lord, if there are any here this morning who are, he- who are hearing that and are saying to themselves, but I want it. I want to be saved. I want that salvation. Would you grant them the faith to cry out to, to you for that? And I thank you in advance that I know you'll do the work of saving them because that's what you promise. So, Lord, we bless you, we praise you, and we lift up the name of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.